0: Shall we start with a prayer, invoking God and the great gurus, and as we name them, visualize them with the spiritual eye, and know that in their omnipresence they are always with us. Heavenly Father, Father, Mother, Mother, Friend, Friend, Beloved God, God, Jesus Jesus Christ, Bhagavan Krishna, Mahavatar Babaji, Mahavata, Babaji Lahiri Mashaya, Swami, Swami Sri Yukteswar Our Blessed Guru, our blessed Guru. Paramahansa Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda. Saints, of Saints of all religions we bow to you all. To you all. May thy love, May thy love shine, forever shine forever on the sanctuary of our devotion and may, and may we be able to awaken Thy love, awaken thy love. in all hearts. Om, Peace. Peace. Amen. Aum. Our subject this evening is the Guru, a divine gift of unconditional love. Unconditional love. Thank God, thank Guru. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit wouldn't do it, but it was some of us. (laughs) Master wrote in his autobiography, God is love. His plan for creation can be rooted only in love. Every saint who has penetrated to the core of reality has testified that a divine universal plan exists and that it is beautiful and full of joy. God is love. His divine universal plan exists. It is beautiful and full of joy. Let's believe and live by this. The outer world will always need our love and our prayers. Always pray, as we do in the ashram, for world peace and harmony. It's so much needed. But what is going on outwardly is not the final word. What Master says here in this quote, that's the final word. He tells us that when the disciple is ready, when the disciple is ready to go back to God, the guru, appears, he comes into the disciple's life in a way that is unmistakable. For many of us who've come since his Mahasamadhi, the first contact was with his autobiography, and that book changed our lives, didn't it? It changed our lives because it brought us into contact with one who is one with God and he can therefore reveal God to us, even us. The highest type of spiritual teacher, one who ascended in the spirit before and has come to earth this time free, what we call an avatar, a divine incarnation. They are beyond the limits of time and space. This means that Master's consciousness is omnipresent. He's aware of everything. It means that he's omnipotent. He can help us anywhere, in any situation. He has power over the forces of this world. One of the direct disciples said to me years ago, each one of us has a living guru by their side, from the moment they read the autobiography, if that is what they want. And Master himself promised, and he could make such a promise because he had that divine consciousness, to those who think me near, I will be near. Now, what he meant was, we would come to know that he was near. Because in his omnipresence, he was always near, he is always near, but we will come to know that. Our second president, Kananda, was the first one to call Paramahansaji a Prem Avatar, meaning an avatar or an incarnation of divine love, a manifestation of God's divine love, one whose nature is predominantly love. Of course, all those who are one with God, they embody within themselves all the divine qualities, the wisdom, the understanding, the ever-new joy and bliss, the compassion and forgiveness, as well as the love, unconditional love, love that never changes and which nothing can diminish. But one quality will tend to predominate in the personality. You probably find that happens with us, too. Not always the best qualities. (laughs) But as we evolve, it gets better. So wisdom often predominated in the nature of uh, Swami Sri Yukteswarji, the guru of our guru. And in the same way, love predominated in Paramahansaji's nature and it is his predominant quality now. It's been said that all of the Guru's training is really love, because it's based on love and its motive is love. Of course, sometimes that may seem to be somewhat disguised, but you have to remember its purpose is to make the disciple stronger spiritually to make us free. Because the true guru, not just a teacher, but the true guru, the final guru, has a very, very high mission than which there is none higher. Master described it this way in his autobiography, quoting Shankara, India's greatest philosopher, a true guru creates equality with himself in the disciple who takes refuge at his feet. In other words, when we found a true Guru, which means the one sent by God, the one ordained by God to take us back into spirit, then his work with us is not done until we are one with him in God, until we share that divine consciousness, until we are free liberated, self-realized, God-realized. God is love, and the Guru is God's unconditional love for us, expressed through a human personality. Until we advance to where we can realize that we too are spirit, as the Great Ones are essentially spirit. But even in that liberated state, Master says, we can still play with God. Because in a cycle of creation, God is both with form and formless. A devotee has a choice, as Master says in this interpretation of a portion of the Bhagavad Gita. He said, after uniting his soul to God, the yogi may still maintain the dual relation, the liberated devotee and God as the object of adoration. The soul of the emancipated yogi can remain merged, if he wishes, in the Absolute as the Absolute. Or the liberated yogi owing to the retention of his God-given individuality which can never be lost may worship God in any desired materialized form, such as Christ or Sri Krishna, or as the infinite. Master said in his lessons, I can show you Spirit without fail if you will follow me and practice what I teach you. If we don't practice his teachings, which, of course, means daily meditation and the study of his writings so that we learn how to live spiritually, how to live more unselfishly. If we don't do that, he can't help us very much. Then what he has said, beautiful as it is, it remains a beautiful dream. It rests with us, you see, each one of us to make God and gurus ideal for us, you could say their dream for us, a reality. It takes our determination, our will, our willingness to change ourselves. And it is possible, it is possible he said in one lifetime, unfortunately no one said it was easy. That's too bad, isn't it? <laughs> or that it was effortless. But it is the most worthwhile challenge we will ever overcome. If we try, Guruji takes 25% of our bad karma, and we promise that 50% more will be removed by the grace of God. So we are left with just 25% of our accumulated bad karma of lifetimes. And that has to be worked out. And the working out of this is beneficial because by exercising our spiritual muscles we grow stronger spiritually. Combine this with regular meditation and we gradually become able to hold on to the effects of meditation, including the deeper effects of meditation even during activity. Once the guru accepts the disciple, and sometimes the recognition is instantaneous because we've been with him before. But once he accepts us, then if we are willing, he takes over our lives. He directs us, he brings to us what we have to learn, to overcome, and he takes us back to God by the shortest route possible for each one of us as individuals. I once asked our Vice President, Srimanlini Mata, about the direct relationship they had with Guruji. You know how sometimes they would tell stories, usually how he taught them some truth, and we see the We all agree the training was invaluable, but sometimes we may think, could I have taken that? Could I have taken that so well? Or would I have been sensitive and felt hurt even though I knew he was trying to help me? And of course they all tell of their first meetings with him, their first times with him, and the overwhelming love and the complete acceptance they felt even though it was obvious that he knew everything about them. So I asked Manli you all speak of his strong training, even saying he could be fiery at times. But did he do that only after you were convinced that nothing could ever change his love for you? And she looked at me a little surprised. She said, of course. <laughs> Very happy she said that. And then she smiled and said, But sometimes you did wonder. <laughs> Yogananda's was and is a mission of love on an individual basis, helping each disciple, each brother or sister who wants to go back to God and to be free forever and then globally to show people through their own experience of God in meditation that we're all part of one divine family, that every true religion has the same basis in truth in one God, and that every child of God has the same divine birthright. To help him fulfill his mission individually and globally, We who consider ourselves his disciples should meditate regularly, practice the science of Kriya Yoga for God-union regularly, and then support the worldwide spread of these teachings, which will help to unite East and West. In his autobiography Guruji explains that Christ and Babaji planned the spiritual technique of salvation for this age. That is the greatness, the spiritual significance of this Kriya Yoga mission of our Guru, the spiritual technique of salvation for this age. How to be more receptive, more in tune with this universal movement, regular meditation. It changes us because it raises the consciousness. It will seem to change the world, change the world around you, simply because it raises your consciousness. Our beloved president, Sri Dayamata, you've so often seen her sitting here, sharing God's love with us. And you can tell, can't you, that life is beautiful for her, not without challenges, but beautiful because it is filled with God. And she's certainly more aware than we may be of the world's problems and their causes, and she also knows the solutions, and that they are more powerful, and that they do work, and that they are working in souls perhaps more than most of us realize. But to be true disciples of this divine Guru, we must get and hold on to what she has. It is only done by giving ourselves to God in meditation and then determining we're going to live our outer life simply by Guruji's teachings. I think, at times, all of us feel that we haven't done as well as we think we should have, considering what we've been given, to really have the way to God opened up before you. But what really matters is that we will never, ever, ever give up. Guruji wrote in a letter once to Ananda Mata. some of you may know she was Daya Marta's younger sister and came to master early in life. She was a nun, I think from her late teenage years. She was very, very dear, very, very precious, but a very retiring disciple, and so most of you didn't get to meet her. But we who did love her very much. He wrote this letter to her and some time ago she shared it, and it was put in our magazine because what he said to her That's how he feels about every, every one of his chalers. He said, I will never give up my job about you. Have no fear. Even when I'm gone and no longer visible to your eyes, you will never be alone. Never give up. A smooth life is not a victorious life. But I will ever lift you up no matter how many times you fall. It's such a beautiful promise, especially when you know that there is the power, the God-realization behind it, and you know that he is able and willing to fulfill it. Now, Master's Path is not a circus, don't seek or accept phenomena. And what does that mean? I would say anything that Master does not advocate, because in his lessons and books he's given us a tremendous spectrum of positive spiritual experiences, of ways to be aware of and to commune with God, personal and impersonal, in-form and formless, infinite in his wonderful — and I really mean wonderful — book, How You Can Talk With God. He says, it's because we are divine, a part of him, that we are unable to find lasting satisfaction in anything material. And then he says, if once you can get that response from God, you will never feel separated from him again. The divine experience will always remain with you. He understands how human we are, how so much of the time we just need to be comforted. And again he says in this book, it satisfies a deep need in our hearts to think that God may take a human form and come to us and talk with us. Study this book, I would say live it, until what it contains becomes your own experience, your life. You have to be very honest with Master, he knows your thoughts anyway. He won't interfere because he respects free will. But if you want his help, tell him. One devotee was very new on the path, had been reading about the spiritual eye. It was also new to him. He just said in Malita, Master, I just don't get it, you're going to have to show me. <laughs> it was obvious to him that Master felt the spiritual eye was very important. He wanted to understand, but it was just beyond his comprehension. So this thought went around and around in his mind for some time, like an obsession. And then one day, there was suddenly this beautiful light in his forehead. He could see it all the time, even as he went about his daily occupation. He said it was beautiful, seemed benevolent, a blessing. It made him very peaceful. It stayed for three days. He was always aware of it. And while this continued, he said, it seemed that every contact he had with people, was blessed with effortless harmony and understanding. Then it went away. Someone told him, you get a taste of what you can have, and then you have to work for it in order to have it permanently. Well, even a taste is worth it, isn't it? I've been here a long time and I've met many people who've had a taste of what you can have. It's not something to talk about generally, except perhaps very occasionally to a spiritual counselor, if you have some question, and never something to boast about, because none of us would want someone else to feel less loved because they had not yet received an equivalent blessing. But when we're willing to forget everything else, and to really concentrate on God in some way, then sometimes, if it is right for that devotee, beautiful things do happen. One example was another man attending his first all-day Christmas meditation. And the minister was talking about the Great Ones, how they celebrate, honor the anniversary of the birth of Christ on earth. And to this man, great ones made him think of Mahavatar Babaji. He'd only recently learned about Babaji, and was fascinated. That band of devotees in the Himalayas, and the man who tried to join them and had to undergo such a severe test to be worthy. And then Master said, there were some American disciples in Babaji's group. So, in that meditative atmosphere, he said, the yearning to be with Babaji's group became so great, he didn't want to breathe. And suddenly he found himself moving, moving in a ball of light. And he noticed how natural it felt. He said he seemed to be traveling a vast distance, but in no time at all and then suddenly he was descending and he felt his body again and it was in lotus posture. And he was descending into a cave where a circle of yogis were sitting in meditation. And he said there was no lighting and none was needed because of the radiance emitting from them. And as he gently descended he knew they were aware of him and he felt their acceptance. And they moved almost imperceptibly so that there was a place for him and his body settled down right opposite Mahavata Babaji. They said, no one moved. His presence did not interrupt their meditation. But he felt accepted and he felt blessed by Babaji. He said, you couldn't be in his presence and not be blessed. But after what seemed like just a short while, he realized he couldn't hold on to that state yet. And suddenly he was back in the meditation hall. But he said the experience convinced him of how much he needed more and deeper meditation to be absorbed within with deep concentration, to be absorbed in Aum, to expand his consciousness, to take him beyond too much bodily identification. Taste of what you can have. We're all very helped and inspired by the stories that those who knew Master share with us. I think it's been an inestimable gift, because it makes him more real, doesn't it? and shows the relationship we can have with him, too. We just have to work for that by bringing him into all aspects of our lives, accepting his help. Because you never know when that pesky twenty-five percent (laughs) is going to show up, (laughs) and we're going to need his help. (laughs) In my own life he definitely worked what I would call, at least a minor miracle, a gradual miracle. As a child, I was extremely shy. And that is an English understatement. I never met anyone who was worse than I was. I liked people, and I always had friends, but it was large groups. Paralyzing. (laughs) My first oral presentation was in, I think it was second grade. We had to learn a little poem and recite it in front of the class and I worked very hard to memorize it. And then I was called, and as I got up to the front and saw the whole group, my mind went blank, so I closed my eyes. <laughs> and With my eyes closed, I recited the whole poem. And then, of course, when you're a small child, I looked over to the teacher for her indication that I could go back to my seat. And she just mumbled something like, very nice, dear. But even though I was — she had a strange expression on her face, even though I was a young child, I could see that she was wondering, what on earth is wrong with her? (laughs) I went on through school, changing classes where possible, to avoid anything before an audience. (laughs) He was watching. I mean, it seems funny looking back. It never even occurred to me to work on it try to change it. So finally I was graduating, and it was a small private college. And everyone was expected to formally thank the president, the dean, who was his wife, the faculty, the graduating class, everything, everybody. I had no idea what I would say. I thought I'd just sort of mumble, thank you, everyone. (laughs) The boy who went up ahead of me spoke very well. He remembered everybody as we should, most appropriately and appreciatively. And then I was on, and I got my diploma, and then a few words of encouragement. And then I stumbled over to the microphone, (laughs) not looking at the audience once. And looking at my feet, I said, I second everything Michael said. That was good for me. <laughs> and then I took off for the stairs down to the hall. <laughs> Afterwards, some of my friends, people who knew me well enough to tease me, said, Nice talk, Pat. <laughs> so life went on. I found the path and was accepted to enter the ashram. It was wonderful. I can just live with God and withdraw completely from the world of scary public presentations. (sighs) Now, if you think about it, you can see I was giving Master an absolutely perfect opportunity to teach me, (laughs) to teach me about having faith in him, in his love, in his ability to help us with what we have to overcome. If you just took everything away, we wouldn't grow we would not become stronger. So he has to take us through that 25 percent which strengthens us and helps to free us. So I went through the stages of monastic training, and I was invited to help with such things as leading meditations, helping at the Encinitas retreat. And I I couldn't say no, because his message, his teachings are so great. I wanted everyone to have these teachings. And if he needed even me to help with some of the sharing, it seemed the least I could do. So it was a good way to get me started. And along the way I got a little less nervous. And one day I was walking down from the hermitage to the retreat at Encinitas, and it was as though Master just lifted the nervousness. And it never really came back again in the same way. And I think he could do that, because by then I'd realized you just have to go on. You have to go through with things, the things that he brings into your life. Pray for his help, but you can't quit, you have to go on. To be a disciple means you have to trust him more than you trust your own feelings. He is the leader, let him lead always remember that he said, I can show you spirit without fail, if, but only if, you will follow me and practice what I teach. And that promise is really worth a little effort, a little struggle, isn't it? Some of the training is very funny afterwards. I was in Mexico with another sister, meeting with devotees, and unexpectedly I was asked to lead a prayer for food. So I started out, and I suddenly realized that I was quoting from Lesson 8A. (laughs) And so I was leading them right into the energization (laughs) exercises. (sighs) So I stopped speaking, and inwardly I said, Master, help! And then the second half of his prayer for food sort of floated (laughs) into my consciousness. So I went on with that. And afterwards I said to the other nun, I really goofed. And she said, Oh, I don't think anyone noticed. (laughs) She said it just seemed a devotional pause in the middle. (laughs) I have to tell you, nuns are very kind. (laughs) They get that from Master and from Ma. And finally came convocation assignments. And down here, right from the beginning, it was always such a family reunion. You know, it's not a crowd, it's a family. You make us all feel so welcome. And then it becomes more and more a privilege and a pleasure to be with you, and to try to share what is most beautiful, most liberating in Master's teachings. And now looking back, I wonder why I was ever so nervous. And I see that if you allow your thoughts to remain on yourself, what you feel, and what you think you want to do, you can miss half the joy in life. Whatever I need, Whatever our fear, he will help us with it, if we let him. And the way to let him is to ask him, and then to follow and practice what he teaches. And then he will minimize the problem. And if you persevere, you will find you have overcome with his help. And with much less suffering than you might have imagined would have been involved. And you see, that, too, is the Guru's love. This divine love that comes through the Guru is incredibly unselfish by normal human standards. So often with human love, the loved one wants you to love only them. There is a possessiveness, which of course is based on human insecurity, and is thus to be forgiven but it can still be difficult to live with. Divine love is always giving and wants only what is right, what is highest, for you. Master wrote of his own beloved guru, Swami Sri Yukteswar, but although wisdom predominated in his nature, being around him intensified Master's own devotional nature, because that was right for him. He wrote of Sri great unselfishness, that he was not trying to hold Master's love for himself, but that he wanted me to be with the Divine Mother for whom my heart yearned. He said, I never imagined anyone could be so interested in me. He loved me for myself. He wanted perfection for me. He wanted me to be supremely happy. That was his happiness. He wanted me to know God, to be with the Divine Mother for whom my heart longed. When you find love at that level, that is God. The Master's love for each chela has that same quality. That love never lessens, even if at times we're not admirable. When all is going well, when we're doing right, that love can be joyous and free, delighting in us, as a parent does when a child takes his first step or is learning to talk. And when things are not going so well, maybe we're backsliding. We've gotten caught up again in something of the world. We're creating more suffering for ourselves. Then that love is a sad love, but it's no less ardent, no less total. It just waits, because each soul has free will. We have to remember that. It waits until we will accept help again. That is the love of God, the love of all our divine gurus. That is the love of that sweet and divine soul that we call Guru Deva. how to respond to such love. Because the best, the most exquisite relationships are when there is reciprocal love. Isn't that so? Love God, love Guru, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do just that, you cannot act harmfully to anyone. And you will meditate, because that is the way to love God as God alone. And you will be in tune with the Guru, and he will be able to take you where he is. Master's nature was not, is not exclusive but all-encompassing. He's our direct guru and he brings us God-love manifested through his divine personality. And part of this gift of God's love is also God's love manifesting through all of our beloved gurus because they're so united in their God-consciousness, there is no conflict. They operate always in divine unity, as we all will someday. And I think we come close to that at Combo, don't you? Some years ago a devotee came from England, actually, asking to receive Kriya at Convocation. I was assigned to speak to him. He was a very sweet devotee, very sincere, He'd been on the path many years but somehow never felt quite worthy of Kriya. Some souls, some humble souls are like that. They have such an awareness of how great Guruji is and how sublime is the gift of Kriya that they humbly hold back. And that was the case with this devotee. But some years previously, Lahiri Mahasaya had appeared to him in a very vivid dream and told him he should be practicing Kriya. <laughs> and also told him how to do it. But still the man's humility kept him back, because he knew, he knew how we normally apply for and receive Kriya. Had he been mistaken? Had his desire created that dream? He continued to wait, meanwhile always regular with meditation. He had a daughter. She was drawn to the path because of his example. She got the chance to come to this country, attended convocation, and was given Kriya. When she returned home, her father said, Now, don't explain it to me. I know you should not do that. But tell me, is this what it is? Is this how it is done? And he described what Lahiri Mahshara had told him. And she said, That's exactly what we were taught. And you can imagine with what joy we enrolled him for that year's initiation. (laughs) You know, it's so sweet to work for these gurus. They often make you feel you're working with them rather than for them, because they have no ego. Always working in unity, encouraging us to do the same. Master said, to those who think me near, I will be near. I've been blessed to see that in the lives of many. And one particular older nun, a direct disciple, I heard about her before I entered the ashram. One of the ministers had spoken of her once, saying that he'd never seen her when she was not peaceful and joyous. And he said he asked her one day, how is it you're always joyous? He said, I know you have much work, much responsibility, there must be problems at times. And he said she looked a little surprised, thought for a few moments, and then said, I suppose we stored up so much joy being around Master that we're still living on that. I was very inspired by that. Shortly after I entered the ashram, I soon identified her. She often had to work very late but it didn't change her nature. I asked her one day, what can we offer to members who want more of the teachings in their languages? We try to have a steady output, but don't have the resources to do it all at once. And she said, tell them they have a living guru by their side from the moment they read the autobiography, if that is what they want. It was really that simple for her. She believed her guru, she trusted him, she lived by what he taught. A few years ago she was experiencing her final illness. She was very weak, and we weren't expecting her to be with us much longer. A nurse was sitting beside her bedside during the night. And one morning the nurse told some of us, Someone came to see her in the night. The nurse was not a member. She said, I think it was your founder. He had long dark hair, an orange robe, and most beautiful eyes. And she said that the nun, who was so weak that she had to be helped to move at all, sat right up, upright from a reclining position, and held out her arms to him. And after a while he wasn't there anymore and the nun quietly sank back into sleep. Over the years I've known other devotees who've had such a simple, trusting relationship with their guru — householders as well as renunciants. Don't we all want the security of a relationship with one who is not only all-loving, but has power greater than life and death? If I analyze what made it work for the nun, she kept it simple. She knew what Master was, in his consciousness, one with God. She had trusted her life to him, and it was that simple. Therefore, anything that came to her — and I saw her go through difficulties with her major responsibilities for his work, with her personal family, with her health — whatever happened, she made the best of it. She really believed that everything would work out, and of course that attitude helped it to be so. She was a very quiet, humble, even retiring person. But she had a certain fearlessness. That brings us back, doesn't it, to those beautiful sattvic qualities that lead to self-realization, which Master explains in his Gita commentaries. And of fearlessness he says, It is developed by faith in God, in his protection, his justice, his wisdom, his mercy, his love, his omnipresence. And that faith can and should be in the Guru as the representative, the manifestation of God. If you knew, each one of you, how much you are loved, how much you are cherished, one day he will break your heart with his love for you. He will break your heart with his love for you. And overwhelmed, you may say to him, you're a fool. You're a fool to love me this much. But he's not a fool. He's your creator. He's your eternal love. He is your destiny. Each one of us is loved as though he or she were the only one. Master said, with God, each one is the favorite. You are cherished, each one of you. You are the reason Christ came on earth. You're the reason Krishna came on earth. You're the reason Mahavatar Babaji holds on to a body. You're the reason Lahiri Maisha came, Sri Yukteswarji came, Paramahansa Yogananda came. That determination to help is in all of them. That's their nature. And one day we will choose to be like them, and it will be our nature too. You've seen that, you've all seen that in Sri Daya Mata and as the years go by, you will see it in others, too. I think all of us who follow Paramahansa Yogananda love and trust his beautiful poem, God's Boatman. It expresses the faithfulness of his love. That even if we're the slowest to make spiritual progress, if we fail again and again and again, he will come back, he said, if need be, a trillion times. And he said he would do that for just one stray brother or sister. He said, I want to show all my brothers the way to happiness, the way to freedom, forever and forever in thee. This was often his theme, and it was always in his consciousness. Many times, in his writings, he would try to give us a glimpse of divine consciousness, trying to prepare us, to awaken us. And I'd like to close this class with the thought of him as God's boatman, caring for all, no one excluded. It simply is unacceptable to him that any be left behind. This meditation of his can help expand our consciousness, remind us of our infinite source, our infinite destiny. As I read this, if you wish, you can close your eyes, cut off awareness of the outer world, and then what is within and what is also infinite becomes more real. The Unseen Church by Paramahansa Yogananda On the Tract of Eternity, I built an unseen church where all might worship. Here, under the blue dome, illumined by sun, moon, aurora, milky way, and wisdom lights, are gathered the assembled star families, island universes, solar systems, and the little earth, with its millions of votaries, of many religions. Every day during the Vesper hour the flying angels of thought soar over infinity, calling mute and noisy beings to forsake their age-long slumber and join the cosmic service of awakening. The altars of one rhythm, united hearts of commingled lives, molten gold of cosmic union and electrified matter, all dimly burning with his gentle, enchanting presence. The comets arrived and shed their joyous tears of light. The stars poured their twinkles at his feet of eternity. And the prodigal souls wept, loving tears of repentance, for age-long forgetful wanderings. All the blossoms of the earth opened the cork of petals and loosened their liquid fragrance on his omnipresent altar. The dew of devotion from the heart of all true tears meekly but steadily flowed over his feet of forgiveness. Love, hate, light and gloom, wisdom and ignorance, good and bad, all thronged into the church of all creation. Then a voiceless sermon of the infinite was heard in the silence. The soundless song of mirth filled the chalice of all lives. The silent smile of light drove hidden gloom away from all. Under the coalescent spell of his sermon Love embraced hate. Light hugged gloom. Wisdom transmuted ignorance. Good charmed bad. Many religions embraced his one faith of truth. Many hearts dissolved into one altar of heart. Many loves became his pure love and many souls became one spirit. All of them sang with one voice the chorus of one religion, one life, one truth, one goal, one devotion, one love, and one spirit. Just a final thought with Master. Even when I'm gone, my help will always be given to true devotees all over the world if they keep in tune. Never think for a moment that when I'm physically absent from you all, I'm not otherwise with you. I should be just as deeply concerned for your spiritual welfare when I'm no longer in this body as I am now. I shall always be watching over each one of you, and whenever a true devotee thinks of me in the silent depths of his soul, he will know that I am near. Whenever a true devotee thinks of me in the silent depths of his soul, he will know that I am near. Jai Guru, Jai Guru.